1: Today,
0: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
2: We were so exciting, I put an electrode into the cells of the hippocampus. This was the region that had been shown to be important for memory storage. And I heard the boom, boom, boom of action potentials. And the thrill of having that was just spectacular. Now I had the naive idea that all you had to do is put an electrode into a cell that is involved in memory storage and I would understand how memory works. How dumb can you be?
0: <laughs> Eric Kandel is not so dumb. He won a Nobel Prize for a major breakthrough in understanding how memory works. He's one of our leading neuroscientists who also knows how to make you remember something by engaging you with a story. Eric is an exceptionally good communicator. He knows how to connect in the simplest, most human way. Eric, you were born in Vienna. Yes. And you start your book with the most compelling story of when you were nine years old. And it's, to me, such an interesting example, such a prime example of how you can engage a reader with a story. What happened when you were nine?
2: Um, My father owned a small toy store, and for my ninth birthday, he gave me something that I very much wanted, which was a train that I could control remotely. And my birthday was November 7th. November 9th was Kristallnacht. That was the night in which A young Jewish guy, very much hurt by the fact that his parents had been kicked out of the house by the Nazis, uh, walked into the uh, German embassy in Paris and shot one of the officials working in the embassy. As a result, not only was this boy arrested, but Kristallnacht broke out in all of German-controlled territory.
0: What does that word mean in English?
2: Kristallnacht means the Crystal Night. Mm-hmm. Every single synagogue in Vienna and in Berlin and several other cities was destroyed. Many Jews were kicked out of their apartment, including my family, uh, and Jews were beaten up all over.
0: And you were you were nine years old playing yes. with your toy train, yes. and you heard pounding on the door. Right?
2: That's right, and. Two guys walked in and said, you've got 20 minutes to get your belongings together, and then you got to get out of here. We'll send you to someplace else. And my brother, who was five years older and much more intelligent, packed up his stamp collection, his coin collection. All of the things were really valuable. I listened to my mother, and she said, don't forget to take underwear and blah, 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 <laughs> blah, 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 blah. I'm sorry. I, I took the boring things that are necessary for everyday life, and none of the things that I really valued. And we left together, and we we were sent to another Jewish family, much more affluent than we were. We were actually quite uncomfortable being there because we knew that they would be uncomfortable having all of a sudden to put up with us. And we stayed there for five days before we're allowed to come back to our apartment.
0: And when you came back, what did you find? Everything
2: of value was gone. My mother's fur coats, my father's better suits, and all of my toys were gone.
0: So you came back to a trashed apartment. Absolutely. Your whole life was turned upside down. Yes. So when when were you able to leave and get to America?
2: So we left in stages... Hitler came in in March of 1938, and we were able to leave in April 39. So, one year after Hitler came in, my parents couldn't leave until August 39. They left just before the war broke out. We were extremely fortunate to get out. So,
0: you and your brother came? By to, ourselves. By yourselves? I to... was
2: nine, and he was 14. Wow. In order to get to Antwerp, where we got a ship that took us to the United States. We had to take a train from Vienna to Antwerp, and my parents took us to the train station. And my mother had so much confidence that things would work out that she conveyed that to us, and Mm. I was never frightened.
1: I find it hard
2: to believe now in retrospect. If I were to have that experience now at my age, I would be scared to death. But here I was, a nine-year-old kid, not the slightest bit scared.
0: You couldn't speak the language, right? What was it like for you? How did you How did you get by? Um, how did you get to, from that to being a Nobel Prize winning scientist? I mean, there's such a leap there.
2: Well, you know, it's not unusual if you if somebody actually did a study of how the European emigres to the United States did compared to comparable people, and the emigres did surprisingly well. I mean, we had a hunger, we had an ambition, we had a need that was, if not a conscious, certainly an unconscious driving force that was very important. Uh, also, there is something about teachers in America that is absolutely fantastic. I had several experiences, but the most dramatic probably was in high school. Mm. I was a pretty good student in high school, particularly in history, uh, and I was also, forgive me for saying that, an athlete. <laughs> why, <laughs> was, why should I forgive you for that? Because I hardly consider myself a great athlete. Oh, come I was, on.
0: You swim every day for endless the, amounts of time. This, I can't speed get over it.
2: is extraordinary. <laughs> uh, I was co-captain of the Erasmus Hall track team. Wow. One thing that a Jew in Vienna learns is how to run. <laughs> Um, so,
0: so you you were you made your way in sports. Yes. And did you have an early interest in science?
2: Uh, no, I didn't have any interest in science at all. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, were you interested yeah. in the arts. Uh, I was interested in the arts. Yes, uh, and I liked to write, and I wrote a column for a. Um, newspaper called Gotham Sports, a commercial newspaper, came out once a week, uh-huh. called Breaking the Tape with Eric Kandel, because as co-captain of the Erasmus Hall track team, I knew not only what our team was doing, but what all the teams in New York City were doing. So I started to write, which is really quite wonderful when I think of it in retrospect. And I remember as a result of that, my history teacher was very supportive of me, and he said, uh, Eric, where are you going to college? And I said, I'm going to Brooklyn College. My brother's going there. It's a wonderful school. He said, Have you ever thought of Harvard? I said, No. He said, Why don't you apply to Harvard? So I went and discussed this with my parents, who are still extremely poor. And they said, Look, Eric, we put out five dollars for you to apply to Brooklyn College. Your brother's going there. It's an excellent it, story. It
0: cost five dollars to <laughs> apply to Brooklyn College, right?
2: And you know, it'd be hard for us to do this So I went back to Mr. Campana. Mr. Campana gave me the $5 to apply to Harvard. Oh, boy. This is unbelievable. And I got into Harvard on in a scholarship. Wow. Yeah. And Harvard was just an unbelievable experience for me. Yeah.
0: I'm so fascinated with your, your grasp of storytelling in the book In Search of Memory. You tell of that moment when you heard the beeps coming from... The sea animal that you were studying the, the animal's called the aplysia yes, well, how did you choose it? Tell me go back a little bit. tell me how, how did you choose this this snail it's a sea snail right
2: it's sna- it 's a marine mollusk it 's a sea snail, and um, it is characteristic of a number of decisions that I made, which turned out in retrospect to be quite productive, but that I had no expertise to help me make that decision. So it was a decision that made sort of almost unconsciously, intuitively, without necessarily having the background information to do it. Kind of
0: an intuitive
2: leap you made. Intuitively. Very fortunate on my behalf. So let me tell you what it is. When um, I went to medical school, I had in my senior year decided that I should take a basic science elective. Now, why did I do that? I would wanted at that point to become a psychoanalyst. So, um, as I was getting more and more interested in psychoanalysis, I thought that even a psychoanalyst should know something about the brain. So
0: <laughs> even a psychoanalyst? Like, that's where the psychoanalysis <laughs> takes place.
2: <laughs> I didn't quite see it as clearly then as I see it now. So, I took a six-month elective in brain science At at Columbia. Right. Uh, And I just enjoyed it tremendously. And as a result of that, I was recommended to the NIH. So when I got to the NIH, I worked in a lab of a guy by the name of Wade Marshall, and he gave young people a complete freedom. So I asked myself, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to work on? So I said, look, the core problem for psychoanalysis is memory. Mm people had just found out that a structure deep in a temporal lobe called the hippocampus was critical for memory storage. And I had learned in medical school how to record from single cells, which at that time was a technical achievement, to put an electrode into the cell and actually record the biophysical properties of the cell. And
0: was that that, is that the story that I, I remember so clearly, the day you heard
2: the beeps? That was the day. we were so exciting. I put an electrode into the cells of the hippocampus. This was the region that had been shown to be important for memory storage. And I heard the boom, boom, boom of action potentials. And the thrill of having that was just spectacular.
0: Wait, back up a second. Action potential, what does that
2: mean? That's a signal that nerve cells give when they communicate information.
0: And you were doing this using the aplysia? The, no, uh, no. I was
2: doing this in the hippocampus. Uh, in the mammalian brain.
0: Oh, you had a probe in a person's head? No, in a,
2: in a, in a oh, cat. Oh, in a
0: cat? Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm, I
2: developed a technique for recording directly from the hippocampus. I put an electrode into the hippocampus and recorded beautiful action potentials, boom, 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 from hippocampal neurons. And I thought I would understand how learning occurs. How naive can you get?
0: So what did you do then? You didn't stick with the cat. Why?
2: Why? I realized that this is, to study learning, you have to see how information is stored in the brain, how inputs are combined in some way. So I realized this is too complicated to do in the cat. I have to go to a simpler system where I can study a very simple learning process.
0: And that's when you decided... That's the, when I
2: decided to go to a plesia. Now, why did I select a plesia? a plesia? has the advantage that it has very few nerve cells, so the number of cells committed to carrying out a single behavioral act is quite small.
0: Let me show off here. As I remember, the plesia has... About 20,000 neurons? To the, to the number, correct. <laughs> and the human brain, by comparison, has billions, I guess.
2: No comparison. Just... So
0: you, you made the problem simpler by using a small population of neurons that you could...
2: That's called reductionism. Uh-huh. And this is a strategy that many scientists, myself included, often take. You take a complex problem that interests you, and you take a very simple example of it, and you try to drive it into the ground.
0: Mm. I've, I've read in your book the Aplysia described as an animal about a foot long and weighing several pounds, and that sounds like a lot of, a lot a lot of, of flesh from very, very little brain cell, brain cell right. activity. Yes. What, is, that, is that unusual in nature?
2: Um, no, there are many animals that have a relatively small brain compared to the size of the body.
0: Well, that's mostly politicians. Also, <laughs> just they a, learned
2: it from a pleasure. <laughs>
0: that's a, just a dumb joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, th- using this reductionist approach, where you boil it down to a simple problem, then you were able to figure out how. How the brain learns and how memory is stored? Exactly.
2: I was able to find for the first time that what happens when learning occurs. Nerve cells communicate with one another through points of contact called synapses.
0: For people who aren't familiar with a synapse, tell me what a synapse is. Neurons
2: talk to each other at special points of communication called the synapse. And that's made up of three components. A Presynaptic component, one cell, a little space, and the other cell that it contacts. And the way it works is that the first cell releases a chemical substance called a neurotransmitter that diffuses across this little space, binds to the next cell, and gets an excitatory process or inhibitory process going in the follower cell. And this this
0: happens almost instantaneously. It happens
2: very rapidly and happens in every nerve cell of the brain. Not simultaneously, but at different times. And people thought that, you know, synapses might be important for learning, but there were many other alternative ideas. So there were several ideas floating around as to how learning could occur. I was the first person to show directly that learning involves changes in the strength of how nerve cells communicate with one another, changes in the strength of synaptic connections. I found that with certain kinds of learning, the connection got weaker, and with other kinds of learning, the connections got stronger. Let me give you an example. Yeah,
0: what's the difference?
2: There's a process of learning called habituation.
0: Hey, you're slapping the table with your hand. What, 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 in if what way is that habituation? If I this long enough, yes. Drive yourself crazy.
2: You will learn to ignore it.
0: Oh, I see. By by, I get habituated because it's just to the so sound.
2: boring. <laughs> and habituation, which is what that learning process is called, yeah. is associated with a progressive weakening of synaptic connections. Oh,
0: how interesting!
2: And if I go boom, <coughs> and I come back with that same weak stimulus, it'll sound much louder to you. And that's called sensitization, when a strong stimulus enhances another reflex pathway. That's called sensitization.
0: So it's almost as if the brain is saying, you don't need to pay attention to that until it says, well, now you better start paying attention again. Something's happening that might be dangerous, maybe.
2: I don't know why the hell you're interviewing me. You know the answers to all of these <laughs> things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're just showing off. Oh, well, I, that's, I can't help that. that I, I find the part of the brain that's responsible for that. I'll give you $5.
2: <laughs> the pre <pre-frontal> cortex.
0: <laughs> when we come back, Eric and I talk about how important relating to the other person is in communication. How even a work of art isn't complete until another person is engaged by it. It's a fascinating idea. Stay tuned.
1: today.
0: This is Clear and Vivid and now back to my conversation with Eric Kandel. So this is so interesting because here you were studying how we learn and you became such a good teacher. Your your teaching is and your writing is so clear and vivid to borrow the title of this show. I'm kind of curious. Did did was there a moment, an aha moment, when you said, "People aren't understanding this if I talk this way"?
2: I, I in my early days, I would always, always practice my lectures and the talks that I gave. Um, in fact, one time with Jimmy Schwartz, uh, we were rehearsing talks, and I tried to give the clearest talk as possible, and he gave a very confused talk. I said, "Jimmy." You know, I'm your collaborator, I know what you're working on, and I have a difficult time understanding the experiments you're describing. He said, why do you do that? He said, Eric, you don't understand. You simply don't understand. I went to graduate school at Rockefeller University, and there they taught us that if your lectures are too simple, they think your mind is too simple. So I purposely tried to make things a little bit more complicated. Well, I had the opposite philosophy.
0: What do you think you drew, you drew on for that? I mean, can you reach back into your own memory bank as, as the psychoanalyst you studied to be or were beginning to think about being? What, what, what gave you that urge to connect with the people you were communicating with and not just try to snow them with your impressive I, vocabulary? I think this happened
2: in high school uh, when the teacher would ask questions you raised your hand, and if you called on you, you stood up. Mm. And I would think through my answer, and I would stand up, and I would give you know several sentence coherent answers. And I saw that both the teacher and the class responded very positively to this. Mm. And I, you know, worked to make it as clear as possible.
0: That's so interesting. You were paying attention to the audience, and Always. in subtle ways, and Always. getting. Clues from them, it sounds like. Absolutely. Uh, how you were I doing. I
2: pay enormous attention to the audience, even now. Sometimes I focus on a particular person who seems to be paying attention to me to make sure that the person continues to follow what I'm saying. Yeah.
0: That, that's, I find that very helpful. Very too. helpful. I take in uh, the audience uh, at random, I, and, I, and someone catches my eye who looks confused. I simplify it.
2: Absolutely. You know. I do the same thing.
0: And it's, it is nice when they laugh, isn't it?
2: Fantastic. Then, you know, you really have them in the palm of your hands.
0: Uh, to me, laughter is a, a state of vulnerability. Yes. And if we laugh together, we're really more open with each other. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you about something that is related to exactly that, what we're talking about now, The the people listening to the person talking, the communicator relies on the audience to a greater extent than a lot of us think about. And I think you've thought about this a lot with regard to what is called the beholder's share. That's a that has to do with art and the say a but painter. But it's the same idea. Same it, idea, it al- isn't it? it?
2: Also, is true for an audience. An audience is a beholder, an auditory beholder. Uh, so, oh, so the, the,
0: tell us about the beholder share because uh, the beholder share is how did that, idea be? that how did Alois
2: Regal... I say, who is that again? Alois Regal. Who is that? He's an Austrian art historian about 1900, and he pointed out that there is the artist who creates something, and there is the viewer who responds to it. And he called that the beholder share because there are two parts to a creative act: the creativity itself, and that is producing a piece of sculpture or painting, and having somebody respond to it. Mm. And he was very interested in how people respond to works of art.
0: And as I understand it in the conversations we've had, there's this idea that the work of art isn't complete until the beholder's share has taken That's place. That's why
2: it's called the beholder's share. Yeah. <laughs> if you create a work of art and no one looks at it, what yeah. use is a work of art? There are really two components of it: the creative act of of making the work of art, and the creative act of responding to it. Ah,
0: uh, the creative part of it responding It is a to creative it. component. Talk to about it. that. Why is that? Why is it creative? And why? What? How does it not uh, impinge on the work of the artist? Does it add to the work of the artist, or does when it cancel you and it I out?
2: I look at the same painting. Yeah, we see it in somewhat different terms. And that is, we bring two things to bear on it bottom up and top down. Bottom up is we have a common visual system, we have a common visual brain, and that pretty much gives us a similar view of the image.
0: We see the composition the same way pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Now, what's top down?
2: Top down is you and I have had completely different experiences in our life. Hmm. I'm older than you. Not by much. (laughs) (laughs) I'm more experienced than you. You're smarter than me. I'll go with that. Not (laughs) true. And you bring to bear those experiences, those associations, which are quite unique for each of us. Right. So that influences any work of art that we look at. Our previous exposure to art, our previous exposure to certain things of life that the art recalls in our head, and so that influences our perception of the work of art. Now you
0: bring up a, a view of making art that I agree with. I get the impression there are artists, and many novelists that I've talked to, for instance, who tell me they don't think about the reader when they're writing. They're writing, I guess, out of an experience that's internal and they explore that internal experience, put it on paper, and somebody reads it and they make of it what they will. Uh, I, I get the impression there are even some painters who do that. Are they, are they kidding themselves or are, are is that just another way to look at it?
2: I think for the successful artist, it must be another way of looking at it. Uh, an artist um, is capable of depicting an idea in ways that are so clear that a beholder who doesn't know the artist at all will be able to get a meaningful response to the work of art.
0: You're working on an interesting problem now about abstraction, right? What, am I, did I'm I get that right?
2: interested in seeing how people respond to works of art. And uh, I've been working with a colleague called Daphne Shahani, a very good cognitive psychologist who does imaging. And we want to see how a person like you, when their brain is being imaged, responds to a work of art from the same artist, when the work is figurative, Transitional or abstract?
0: What's transitional mean? Between figurative. Between and,
2: figuration and abstraction.
0: In other words, a, a picture of a person who looks like a person
2: versus a picture that, you know, the outlines of a face, but it's not clearly delineated.
0: Right. And then a, a real abstraction. abstraction. So this is fascinating. Fascinating. I guess. You see,
2: what's happening is that the distinction between art and science in some ways, is being diminished because we're beginning to bring scientific methodologies to bear on the study of art to give us even greater insight into how the beholder responds to work of art and maybe even to the creative process whereby the artist produces the work of art. Now, many people think that this will degrade art and will reduce our appreciation, and I think that's just nonsense. The more we understand something, the more insight we have in how we respond to something, the richer it makes our experience. It seems to me
0: that's true because I place a lot of value in trying to figure out what's going on in the listener's mind. And the more I know, the more I know what I'm doing to that brain, the better, the, the more better. effective I think I can be. Exactly.
2: Make. That's exactly it. Whether you're getting across, it's just like when you communicate verbally. Right. What's the purpose of the communication if we don't understand one another?
0: I'm thinking the, the, the name Ezra Pound just fell into my head. I had the impression that he really didn't care at all what, whether people understood him or not. I, I find his poetry almost impenetrable.
2: Yeah, but um,
0: but some people maybe get the connection. T. S. <S. Eliot, for example, was yeah, very he, much
2: influenced by him. So he he was able to reach people at his level, even though he was not able to reach the right. general I need audience to go, in many sometimes cases. Sometimes
0: I need to go a couple of steps down from T. S. Eliot too. But uh, but I I see what you mean. He he did communicate. He with communicated the
2: with other poets quite effectively and influence them.
0: Yeah. So there is this interaction yes. w- almost willy-nilly.
2: And, you know, for some people, communicating to other poets is more important than communicating to the general audience. Uh. I mean, I wouldn't feel that way, but I certainly want people who work at my level to enjoy my work. Right. But I wanted to go beyond that.
0: Now, you you're capable of being clear and vivid when you're writing for somebody like me who's curious but not trained in your work, do you worry that someone who is trained in your work will find it too simple or do you have a way of talking to both of us at the same time? I think
2: it's essential to speak to both of you at the same time. So what would bother a colleague of mine is if I distorted the facts.
0: Mm, what's called dumbing down. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, that doesn't seem to help no, anybody. That it doesn't. certainly doesn't help the, uh, the uninitiated it because we, the science. we get the wrong impression of what it is Absolutely. and we start making Absolutely. crazy claims yes. about science. Yes. You've had a life with your wife, Denise, that reminds me of the advice I give young actors. They expect me to tell them how to get an agent, and I say... The most important thing you can do is find a life partner who helps you stick to your values, assuming you have any, or helps you find a good set of values if you're short on them. And I get the impression that Denise has been that, that person for you.
2: Denise has been marvelous for me because she saw things in me that I did not see in myself.
0: And didn't she encourage you to follow uh, hard neuroscience. And- Absolutely.
2: So when I, um, took an elective in medical school, just as I was getting out in basic science, I just enjoyed it immensely. And I had dinner with Denise and I said, you know, I, I get enormous pleasure out of doing science, but it's completely unrealistic. Um, uh, You don't have any money. I don't have any money. We want to get married. We don't want to have kids. I've got to have a private practice in order to have an income necessary to support us. And she said, money is of no significance. A subsequent sixty-one years of her marriage, she's never repeated that. But that particular evening, <laughs> she just completely she let it slip out. Right, <laughs> won me over.
0: So you did not pursue a private practice in psychoanalysis. Instead, you went into poking people in the head with these electrodes.
2: <laughs> I didn't poke them. Oh, not people, cats. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this poor little sea slug. Right. <laughs> I got training in psychiatry. <clears throat> And I was actually pretty good. I liked doing it. I liked psychotherapy. I liked the human interaction. And my colleagues, including some of my mentors, thought it was a shame if I went into full-time research. Uh, And they thought that I should also do part-time practice. And I said, look, would you like to go to a physician who does research four days a week and sees patients one day a week? He needs more practice. (laughs) He needs more practice. And they said, well, maybe you specialize on something. And they suggested hypnosis, huh. and I said well, that's the least attractive. You know, the reason psychotherapy is an interesting discipline is you get to know another human being. You interact with them. That
0: I think answers the question I asked you before: How, what was the the, the central germinating point from which you communicate so well? Is you want to make contact with another a, human, and it it guided your life absolutely.
2: Absolutely. I enjoy that a great deal.
0: And the fact that you started in psychoanalysis is interesting to me because you haven't really left that point of view.
2: People ask me, wasn't it a waste of time? You know, you had your own analysis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I said, not at all. I gain from it every single day. Uh, And
0: I get the impression that you feel that psychoanalysis raises questions that can be answered by brain science.
2: Brilliant. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> I'm the impression the I get problem, from you. <laughs> the problem with psychoanalysis is not that um, it isn't interesting. It's not even that it's not true because we don't know. It hasn't been tested rigorously. The weakness with psychoanalysis is there have It's getting better now, but for the longest time, there were very few outcome studies, both on the concepts and on the therapy. Mm -hmm. So people went into therapy or they went into analysis, uh, but no one did a a test to see what happens if they didn't go into therapy. What Mm -hmm. happens if you take two people that have the same problems, one goes into analysis, the other one doesn't, or goes into a different kind of therapy, do you see any difference between them? So outcome studies, by and large, were not done. Now,
0: science developed these methods of assessing the value of various techniques, but they weren't. They don't seem to have been applied systematically to psychoanalysis. Why, why do you suppose that is?
2: Why do you think it's so? Because you ask a psychoanalyst, how come you don't do outcome studies? And a number of answers are given, but one typical one is it's so difficult to do because what is critical to psychoanalysis is the way I, the physician, the therapist, interacts with the patient. So
0: it has to be a subjective view of whether and, and it's it, working.
2: And it, and it needs to involve the therapist himself. Or how can the therapist himself evaluate in an objective fashion yeah, yeah. whether or not the change he produced in the patient was beneficial or not? So that's been a problem. But slowly but surely the field is overcoming these problems.
0: This has been a lovely conversation. I want to close out this part of the conversation on the good news you were telling me about the other day, about uh, the bones as a source of something that I didn't know the bones were a source of.
2: Gerard Kosenki at Columbia has shown that bones are an endocrine gland they release a hormone called osteocalcin. And we've been collaborating together, and we found in experimental animals that animals, like humans, show age-related memory loss, mm. different from Alzheimer's disease. And osteocalcin is hormone released from bone reverses age-related memory loss. So this, and this will be very important for you because we influence each other this way. You once invited, us, invited me to your house, and I was astonished to see in your house that you've got a pool. Yes. Because I'm addicted to swimming. Yeah. And you were not swimming that much, but because I sort of egged you on, you started to use your own pool a little bit more. All
0: right, so was I releasing that hormone and doing that?
2: You know, it turns out that swimming is probably not as good for you and me as I thought it was. It's very good as a cardiovascular exercise, but a better exercise is to do something that releases osteocalcin from bone. Which is what? Walking. Walking? Walking.
0: At, 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 at a fast pace or any pace? I
2: think any pace, but certainly walking a little bit faster is even more effective. I think walking is probably, as one matures, an optimal exercise.
0: This is so good because the next time I take a walk, I'll remember how to get home.
2: <laughs> That's a separate problem. <laughs> but was I think a, it's really quite encouraging. We need to do studies now to really show this in a rigorous way. But walking may turn out to be a really optimal exercise for people in their 70s and 80s in terms of trying to keep their cognitive functions as effective as possible.
0: That's so great. Good news to end on. Before we totally end, though, we do something on the, on the show that I hope you'll go along with. I ask seven quick questions, and they're intended to get seven quick answers. Not, not too much thought about it. It's just see how you respond. See what comes up out of the back of your head. Have you, okay? You okay with that?
2: Yes, yes, yes.
0: Okay. So the first one is, what do you wish you really understood?
2: Myself. Uh,
0: Two, what do you wish other people understood about you?
2: How my um, factors that have influenced my life importantly, being Jewish on the one hand and being an émigré on the other, have affected my later life.
0: What's the strangest question someone has ever asked you?
2: Why I like life in the United States. Strange because. It's so obvious. Yeah. Marvelous country to live in.
0: Now, here's, a, here's an active one. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
2: I walk away. <laughs> just like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I change the conversation. Sometimes it's hard to do. Walking away Fair. is clear cut. <laughs> is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy?
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. Hitler. Uh yeah. I mean, there are many people who are just such awful human beings.
0: How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon?
2: I think the best way to do it is to be the in-person.
0: in person. In person. How do you like to do it? <laughs> it's very hard. But you, do, but you prefer that. You have to do that. Yeah. Okay, here's the last one. What if anything would make you end a friendship?
2: If a person was dishonest with me, lied to me in some way. Right.
0: Well, you can count on me. I want to keep our friendship. Thank, I you, do so too. Much, Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you so much. It's just great. Thank you. Thank
2: you very much. This has been clear and vivid.
0: At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear goes to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Dr. Eric Kandel is an inspiration to me. He's everything a scientist should be, and he's humble and funny at the same time. His latest book is The Disordered Mind, What Unusual Brains Tell Us About Ourselves, and is full of fascinating stories and insights. I'm really curious to talk more with Eric about that book as well as the research he discussed today, so I know we'll have him back as a guest soon. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Kossin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or from wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
1: today.
0: Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Isabella Rossellini. You probably know Isabella from her extremely successful acting and modeling career. You may not know her as one of the most unusual communicators about the sex lives of insects and other animals.
2: People always assume that animal mate like we do, a male and a female, but that's not the case. So I wanted to tell that story, and I thought you could always start with just simply a close-up of me saying, if I were a praying mantis, this is how I would make love, and I would change myself in costume, because of course I have a long experience as a model and so costume and um, fashion is my background so I could transform myself into that animal and show how they make.
0: Isabella Rossellini, next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher or wherever you listen.